Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Um, it's been a really nice week. Got to go to the beach and then been to a couple of concerts and finally feel like I'm settled into the year. How about you? How did you go to all those things? Didn't school start? <laughs> yeah, but it's a senior year. Come on. <laughs> Damn, that makes me sound so lame. <laughs> um, yeah, I have been working and doing things for my club. <laughs> so different but this weekend i'm gonna have fun so stay tuned <laughs> yeah i quit all of my clubs so i guess we're just living different <laughs> <laughs> well anyways today we are super excited for our episode um because we will be interviewing jeffrey gibson over a clementine izzy great let's get into it Today I picked a Clementine Izzy because, I don't know, Izzy's just make me think of a very, like, certain period in life. Um, I feel like a lot of the drinks that we pick are kind of throwbacks to a certain period. But I remember Chipotle used to, like, not really have soft drinks like that. And they used to, like, push the Izzy agenda really heavy. And I remember they would have, like, the entire case of just, like, Izzy's behind the counter. So that's where I was first introduced to the Izzy. How about you? Uh, Introduced to the Izzy. Um, Honestly, it does bring me back to middle school because our local Medici, um, which is a bakery of sorts in Chicago um I remember like they used to just have like hella canned Izzy um but I feel I don't think I've ever been like a huge fan honestly I really like their packaging and like coloring or yeah their packaging and their marketing and their colors but I don't think I ever really it was never like my drink of choice especially not the Clementine one I like that it tastes more natural than like a Sprite though like, I think it, it's like the bridge between the like the stuff that I really don't like, like Spindrift and that stuff and like a soda. <laughs> but I can't do any like flavored water. Um, and like, I don't do a ton of like Spritey soda either. So it's like a bridge. I see. Well, um, don't know really what happened to the Izzy franchise. I feel like it kind of like disappeared. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Crazy idea. Why is there not an Izzy hard seltzer? They really blew the bag. Yeah, wait, actually, I feel like that would be really good. Because I feel like their their flavor is like, is concentrated enough. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? If Spindrift can have seltzers, so can Izzy. <laughs> Moving on to today's guest, we are going to be hosting the incredible artist Jeffrey Gibson. He is a multi-genre, multi-medium artist who works a lot in sculpture as well as painting. Um, I think his work is absolutely incredible. Teresa, do you want to tell us a little more about him? Yeah, so Jeffrey Gibson, um, he is an artist that I feel like just has works that kind of like make you stop in your place and really look at them like um because of the pandemic I haven't seen his works in person but just seeing online and virtual exhibits 
um, for example, like his punching bag series are just very bold and um, kind of like take up space that catch your attention um, in a museum. Um, I think it's really cool that he's worked with so many different mediums and he's even like transitioned between mediums throughout his career, just kind of generally um, an icon in the art world. And we are really, really excited to interview him, not only about his whole career, which spans so many decades, um, but also just how he keeps on changing his approach to art. Great. Should we call him up right now? Yeah, let's call him up. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Good. I guess I'll start with the first question just about, um, I know that you grew up like in a military family and I know that you moved around to a bunch of places when you were young. Um, so retrospectively, I was wondering like, how did that influence the way you see like the global world? Well, it made it very normal, like to think about the global just kind of as a starting point. It's not something that I had to like learn, you know, counter to anything that was taught to me. It's just the way what I was born into. And um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, there's always a period where you realize you're a foreigner, but when you live there long enough, you have to let that go and you have to kind of engage and become part of where you're living. And I think that's really something that I wish everybody could experience because then you realize that a community is made up of people of differences, like not necessarily everyone has to be the same in a community. And um, so to me, that's what's normal, you know, even though I know it's not what's normal, you know. Yeah, and um, I also noticed that you incorporate a lot of different mediums um, and a lot of different um, pieces of material from different places. Mm -hmm. And does that fit into kind of how you see us looking at the global world? Yeah, you know, I think um, I talk a lot about what we all inherit. Um, and by that, I mean sort of like what you're born into. And we don't really have a choice about that, right? This is the world you're born into. And I, unfortunately, this time in history of the world we're born into likes to categorize things and create these boundaries and kind of emphasize difference. And um, I guess the way that I grew up kind of taught me that there are situations where um, those differences kind of dissolve, you know, and like, basically these kind of hybrid forms happen and I guess I've begun thinking lately about those things as new starting points to think about how we negotiate with each other and so that you know the difference between let's say something as simple as like art and craft the day that I realized I was like oh that's just someone's perspective that was written and it was taught to me and I believed it for a minute and now I'm gonna let that go was kind of like an amazing thing to realize that I can do that with lots of things in my life, you know? So it's not as if I don't understand the need and the desire to kind of simplify and place things into categories and to talk about difference. I also think that they need to coexist with the ability to be very generous and share and allow things to influence each other because that's, it's kind of unstoppable, you know? 
it's that's going to happen. Um, and also, I grew up in a time period. It, you know, it's interesting looking at children's television shows from like the '70s and '80s. Um, that was kind of the vision that was being projected for the future. You know, we were all going to be mixed race. We were all going to be this like beautiful brown-skinned family, and everyone was like riding on rainbows and these magical beings that could change shapes were going to help us take care of the environment. And clearly, that's not what happened. Um, but it, it, it is a really um, beautiful vision that, again, I, I really did truly grow up thinking like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, that's what's going to happen in the future, you know? Yeah. And you said something really interesting about kind of breaking down the barrier between art and craft. But I see your art as just constantly breaking down these like physical barriers that we might often put forth. When you look at these barriers, is it just like an epiphany that comes to you that helps you break it down? Or does it come through like a long process of studying and understanding the difference between these forms? You know, I think at the beginning, um, I think in the beginning I would consciously think about like, how do I kind of merge these two things that might seem like they're not in relationship to each other. And then the goal was to, create relationships where there was they really just became sort of like one thing right and then now i feel like the more i just let myself create intuitively and not overthink things that it just kind of happens naturally do you know what i mean like i'm looking at i'm looking at everything i talk to a lot of people i have a lot of conversations with people and i feel like like living is kind of like absorbing this amazing situation we're in and reflecting it in the work. And, you know, the world doesn't operate on difference to me. People operate on difference. Culture operates on difference. But like nature doesn't, you know. And so I guess I just kind of increasingly have been like, especially since I have young kids, seeing the way and thinking about what you're teaching them it's like i don't want to teach them to see things different you want to teach them and be like this is everything the world has to offer you and you get to explore it so i guess i'm kind of trying to do that myself and do you think that like art and creating has taught you that or do you think like life has taught you that and then you bring it into your art um a little bit of both you know i mean i think um Art is one of the reasons why I really love being an artist and I love, you know, when I say I love the art world, it is true. I do love the art world. I understand all the criticism of it. That's lots of things we could talk about that are wrong with it. But amongst the things of how I could choose to spend my time that's like named as like a thing to do, being an artist allows me to do more of, an, of what I want to do. You know, it gives me a place to be able to like author new forms, it gives me a place to like experiment, to try new things, to like bring other people in from different fields. And I don't know where else I could do that and have a kind of uh, support system of any kind. So, and then life, I think, you know, I mean, not so much right now, but I think I was, the, I, I had this opportunity, you know, and the art world is interesting because like, there's lots of different art worlds. But there's a really young art world, which I'm really excited by. And then there's people who, who are like in their 70s and they've been in the art world for a long time. And they I love the stories that they can tell you, not just about artists, but like about an artwork or how they're 70 and they're like starting something new, you know, they're, and 
I was like, that's a really different kind of 70 per 70 year old person than I grew up knowing about. Like to me, when you were 70, you were just, I don't know, taking, just getting through the day, you know? <laughs> and like, so when you meet people who are like flying all over the world and like engaged in conversations and interested in young people and like listening to young people, like, I think that you realize that, and, and then there's a lot of older people too, who when we get to that age, you're just like, oh, wow, I made it through. I get to put all this down. I just get to do what I want to do now. So I don't want to go off tangent too much, but there's a combination in there about maturity that I kind of wanted to accelerate and be like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to care this much about these things that I really don't think ultimately matter. Like when I say that though, I don't want to dismiss that. I understand why they matter today or I understand why some things are urgent right now but there's this bigger picture that I would really like to be able to express yeah that's really interesting and I guess digging into your like 2020 and um a lot of the works that you made more recently I was first wondering it seems like you had a very productive 2020 like what allowed you to stay so active during the pandemic you know, I felt responsible to, to be honest. I talked to really, because I teach really early on um, in the beginning, like, you know, I think it was maybe April, 2020. Um, I organized a couple of talks with um, two um, AIDS activists and artists, um, Avram Bronson, I'm sorry, Avram Finkelstein, who is one of the founders of Grand, Grand Fury and um, A.A. Bronson, who one of the founding members of General Idea. And I wanted to talk to them because I felt sort of guilty about being an artist at a time when there was so much going on in the world. Really to be in my studio. Um, they were already involved in their communities as artists. And then the politics around AIDS, the, the loss around AIDS, you know, the crisis around AIDS, and we're talking about the late 80s and early 90s impacted their community in a way that they were already talking about it and here all of the circumstances changed in such a radical way they continued talking about it so it's not like they suddenly started making political work it's like they were still talking about their communities and and voicing what was happening you know and so that made me think you know, I, I was looking back at a lot of my work over the last 10 years and I was like you know what Jeff you've been talking about race and relationships and love and politics and communities for a long time at this point like so now it's just the time for you to continue talking about them with what's going on now and so i felt really responsible to continue making work because i was like this is who you are like you're an artist and you're a teacher and this is your time to just sort of like lean into what's what's happening now and um and so I did that and we, we, we shot a lot of videos, you know, the performances were happening at Socrates Sculpture Park, which we were able to continue. And those collaborations um, became really important to do um, and to kind of like show up and figure out how we could continue. Um, just also, well, I was going to ask another question, but when you're talking about the sculpture park and then also um, I was looking at your like punching bags um what does like what is size how does size contribute to the way that you see like pieces and work and like the scale 
of what you're doing? Um, well, because some of the work is, well, I remember that, you know, it was like 2011, the very first punching bag was kind of like coming into my head, like conceptualizing it. And I remember thinking I was like, like, this is such a crazy thing. Why would you, why would you dress a punching bag? And, and, and so it took like a year and a half for the first one to be made. And that felt like a huge thing to think about like beadwork or fringe or jingles or anything like on it. And, and it seemed so like kind of bizarre that these are the things that would come together. And then um, I made it and I was still really nervous about it. And then when I showed it, it was like people could like read it so quickly. You know, they were like, oh, power. Oh, you know, feelings of oppression. Oh, fighting. Um, and then, then the language of the materials that I was putting on it. And I really didn't expect that. You know, I was kind of like making something that I felt like was trying to give image to something that I was feeling, you know, and then so when I showed it to other people and they kind of connected with it so clearly, that to me was a big piece like that. I mean, I mean, in scale that felt big, like I was like um, and then scale became a challenge because of um, I was like, well, we can't bead something huge, you know, it's like just the amount of labor and time that goes into everything. But working in the materials that I work in, um, I knew that I really wanted, we, I couldn't just send like, you know, two to four pieces out into the world a year if I was the only person making them. So that's when I started assembling this team of people to help me. And, um, and that has been what's really enabled us to produce pieces that go into the world and to start take on, taking on scale. Um, and most recently, for instance, like we started working with a group of um, Nepalese refugees in Cincinnati who we're, we're hiring, you know, just in there, they're in Cincinnati, we're here. We sent someone out there from the studio to train them. And now we're employing them to produce bead panels. And like that to me is its own kind of scale, you know? So I think about the way that I operate as an artist and, and you'll hear me kind of shift between I and we and they and us. And I do think of our production as like plural, you know, like I'm the creative person behind everything and I'm responsible for it. But ultimately there is, there is at this point, my gosh, between the studio and these, these people in, um, thank you, between the studio and these people in Cincinnati, we're like pushing over 20 people right now. But I feel like, so there's that kind of scale and then there's scale of like space, right? And that's been a real challenge, but I'm, it was a challenge that I feel like I wanted to take on. And so the monument was one of them. Um, and that was something that I've thought about for a long time, that structure um, from Mississippian culture, this ziggurat structure, something that I've been fascinated with for the last 25 years. So when the curator, Jess Wilcox, asked me, uh, I thought, you know what, here's my chance. And I kind of, for the past two years, when someone asked me to do something, I always think I'm like, let me ask the thing that I really wanna do that I maybe would not have asked to do 10 years ago because I, I would think they would say no. You know, I would do that conversation I'm having. Like, I don't know how you do that. No, I just ask. And immediately it was like, yeah, let's do it. 
And then um, there's a couple projects coming up in the next year and uh, two years even where scale is a real thing, you know, and I'm not filling the space with um, like small beaded objects, but it's more about like the ideas and the histories and the content and the concepts in the small objects and trying to think like, how do I bring them out to fill 10,000 square feet, you know? Um, and that's also where I started leaning more into performance and collaboration and video. Um, yeah, networks and, and, and that's been, um, it's really great. It's really great. And in a weird way, I kind of get to step back a little bit, you know, like I kind of create a platform or, or some sort of structure for people to engage with, but then I kind of get to step back. Yeah. And I was wondering on that, um, like stepping back conversation, is it, does it add more stress or less stress when you have so many other people handling parts of your work? It used to be more stress, but then I realized that, um, I am okay with, well, I should say I'm, I, I think I'm really clear with people as to what they're getting involved in, you know? So if you were to step into a collaboration with me, I'd be like, great, just as long as you know, like you're representing you and you're adding to this idea, but there might be someone else who you don't agree with who I invite, and they're also gonna add to this idea. And in my mind, it, that's giving us a truer picture of what this whole subject is, you know? I'm not just inviting people who agree with me. I mean, I'm inviting people who I respect what they do, which probably means we're in alignment in lots of ways with our priorities and our politics and things. But ultimately, um, I guess I used to feel res more responsible for like what you were going to say. And now I'm like, no, no, I'm responsible for the invitation, but I'm not responsible for what you bring to the table, you know? Totally. Um, if that makes sense. So there's been a little bit of like a mental shift, but it's a lot of work. I mean, the communication is a lot of work. And I have I have a couple of people here in the studio who just helped me just with maintaining all of that. And it's still a challenge because everyone comes with their own team. And, you know, there's a lot of voices in the room sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I had another question. And especially because you do teaching, I was wondering specifically about your exhibit at the Newbury Library, because yeah. I learned about EA Burbank in like my photo one class and then another time in high school, like very uncritically. And yeah. I guess I was wondering, I mean, the, the work that you created was beautiful, but can you talk about why you think how you think EA Burbank tends to be taught and why you think it could be a problem? Well, I think I, to be quite honest, I don't really care about Burbank. Um, it's more, I think about these, I think about this genre of portraiture that was happening at, in early 20th century, turn of the century. And how, again, it's so different from the way that we learn about portraiture, the importance of portraiture. You know, the idea of the portrait is that like, you have the person, the subject in the middle, but their story is told with what's around them. You know, it's told through what they're wearing. And in Burbank's portraits are that kind of portrait. Oftentimes these people were prisoners being told to sit for a portrait, you know, and the leverage of that request is that your entire communities are being displaced and imprisoned, starving, raped, you know, and so, 
to be asked to sit for a portrait, to sit still and let someone objectify and paint you, dress you, and not tell your story, it's not a portrait. In no way is this a portrait to be celebrated. And I think for me, when I started working with those portraits, I realized, I felt it was kind of like, okay, well, these are portraits made by the same artist. They're on view anyways. So this is an easy thing to choose to work with. And I wasn't sure what I was gonna do with them. And I just started getting more and more triggered by them. And then when I started looking into the biographies of the individuals, I was like, oh my God, clearly this is why these are horrible. And, and then, um, you know, and they're not even valued in the institutional sense. You know, the images that we receive from the Newberry are like D quality images at best. You know, there's like shadows cast across them. They're just sort of, um, I don't know, they're sort of like the bad stepchildren, like, you know, like somewhere kept in the dark. And it's just, so anyway, so painting with them, I realized one, I didn't have any respect for them. Two, I wanted to somehow create a relationship with this image for myself, because I can't speak for anybody else. And my goal isn't to speak for anybody else. And I had to kind of give over to abstraction and even like the ability to like, reprint them, you know, numerous times and to shift their color and to pour paint on top of them and to cut into them and reassemble them into something new. And there's only six paintings and I know the order that they were completed in. And by the time you get to the end, it's interesting, the image becomes so dispersed throughout the field of painting. Like it's no longer this, no longer does the, um, the figurative image become the subject and everything else becomes the background. But the figurative image kind of gets disseminated into this entire space. And to me, those are hard because these, these conversations can seem to be so exact in their criticism and exact in their history. But truthfully, there's so much that's unwritten and there's so much that's like untold and unfelt about all of this history that I think for me, the beginning was just to sort of engage, you know? And that's kind of how I think about all the work that I make is I'm just like, I just want to engage with fringe. I just want to engage with beads. I just want to engage with weaving, but I'm not looking to arrive at any kind of statement about it. You know, I'm more interested in a conversation with the two of you today than I am in making a statement. And I think that that sort of that's for now i mean i think that's really the statement is is problematic because it feels so fixed and it feels so authoritative and there's something i think necessarily humble about showing up and being like i'm i'm open to being criticized i'm open to being you know in conversation with you and we will learn about each other in this conversation you know no, I think that's like a super healthy, I guess. Not only healthy, it just, sure. I mean, it is. But it also just feels like a lot of your responses just like interweave the way that you've thought about like life in general yeah. and how to approach things. Um, I also wanted to ask that I read that in 2011, you almost like just gave up on making art. Um, can you sort of talk about that point in your career and sort of like, was there any mentality shift or like what was your perspective on like 
your work and like your purpose and like what you were doing back then as yeah. opposed to now? Well, I think um, probably previous to 2011, uh, I was, I mean, I was just like a lot of artists at the time. I was working like 70 hours a week, lived in Williamsburg, had a studio, was squeezing in, making paintings from like 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. And it was just kind of hellish, to be honest. And then you would show some paintings and you're you're like, oh, maybe I'll get a gallery. Maybe someone will buy a painting and like take me out of this hell for a minute. And then the paintings would like come back, you know, like they and nothing would happen. And it was just it was kind of like endless. And then I was doing um, abstraction, just like totally process based painterly abstraction at the time. And the people who started responding to my work were just into like the color they were into, um, you know, what the formal qualities of it, and they didn't really care about the narrative. So that was always really frustrating. And then um, I don't remember exactly why somebody recommended that I went and talked to a therapist. And I this was probably like 2005. And I remember going and seeing them and um, I remember going in thinking like, oh, I'm going to leave here in an hour. And he's going to be like, you don't need therapy. He's like, you're doing just fine. And like, at the, like five minutes in, I was like going down a rabbit hole about like race and class and how much like the art world is triggering. And I was like, I can't handle it. And and then um, so he's the one who recommended he was like, you know, it sounds like there's like a disconnect between like what's happening up here and then what your body is feeling, you know, and he's like, and so we need to get these in alignment. And that's where I started working with a physical trainer and that's who introduced me to boxing and that's where the boxing punching bag emerges out of years later. But in 2011, I just kind of didn't know how to get over that hurdle. So the punching bag that happens in 2011 is really what pulled me out of what you're referring to. And, um, you know, there was a big economic crash in 2008 in New York and there was literally nothing going on for like two years. And so that's when I ended up going out to San Francisco and teaching at CCA. And it was out there that I was like, you know what? I'm not going to try to show. I'm not going to talk to people about my work. I'm just going to get a studio and make work. Um, and I did. And I kind of was like throwing my hands up and I was like, I'm going to make exactly what I want to make. And if it lands in the art world, great. If it lands in the craft world, great. If it lands with me being an educator, great. If I'm going to go to school and get a PhD and become a historian, great. And luckily, after about two years of traveling, we also went to France for a period of time. And that's, I think, where I really kind of made some some real progress. Then I got a call from participant, uh, Leah Gangitano at Participant in New York City, and she offered me an exhibition. And then I also got a call from Matthew Dipple at a gallery called American Contemporary. He offered me an exhibition. And in my mind, I thought, you know what, I'm going to get back to New York and I'm going to show exactly what I want to show. And this will be my last exhibition ever. And that's where that was the work that like everybody kind of was like, oh, my God, I get it. Like they saw it, they understood it. I had changed a lot of things about my work. I was collaborating with um, different indigenous traditional artisans from around the country. And yeah, I just did exactly what I wanted to do and 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 people recognized it and so that was that's what kind of shifted you know that's beautiful um and sorry we're running out of time so 
we just wanted to um, make sure that we know everything that you are up to lately. Because looking through all your work, it seems like you have so much going on at once. So could you tell uh, the listeners everything that you have up and where people can see your work right now? Well, right now, um, the monument is at De Cordoba Museum in um, Massachusetts. And then I will open um, a solo exhibition on the inside galleries um, where we're showing um, new works on paper, um, a piece from 2018, which was sort of like the beginning of the show titled Infinite Indigenous Queer Love. Um, and then there's some large new sculptures um, in the galleries. And then, um, after that, I will do a show with the gallery I work with in Chicago, Kavi Gupta, in November. And um, we'll be showing some new work there. And then I think we jump to, um, I'll be out in Albuquerque for a print residency with Tamarind in October. Um, and then going, I think I'm doing a solo exhibition with Site Santa Fe in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's a large exhibition in, um, I think it's May of 2022. Um, and then, my gosh, there's work in Sydney next year. There's work in, um, what am I forgetting? This is my trusty, trusty Brian over here. Um, yeah, I know, I know that there's other stuff. Oh, Aspen Art Museum will be doing a project. Toronto Biennial starts um, going into this fall. And then I'll be doing Building 5, which is an 18,000 square foot space at Mass Mocha in 2023. So we'll start working on the collaborations this fall, heading up to there. And then there's a couple other things that, um, yeah, a couple things that I, I probably shouldn't mention just yet, but. Sounds awesome. Well, I am currently planning a trip out to the sculpture garden so i'm really oh, excited cool. to see some of you work in person yeah. but thank you so much for taking the time today yeah absolutely thank you both so much thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of two versions we hope you enjoy getting to know jeffrey gibson and check out his work you can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.